That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, and that is a brand new intro to this show. Many thanks to senior, massive executive producer and dear friend Arden Fari for putting that together. Welcome, everybody. However you find this show, podcast platforms for our early adopters, more than 70 radio stations around the country, CBS and, of course, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, welcome to The Takeout. Uh, No time to waste. Ron Brownstein is our distinguished guest this week. He has written a new book called Rock Me on the Water. Before I get to the book, I just want to say a couple things about Ron. Once he was my boss, a great boss. He was also someone I looked up to and admired from afar before we actually became friends. And I don't know if you've had this experience in your life, dear listeners and viewers, but that's a great thing in life, to have someone you look up to and admire and then gravitate into their world and have that person become a friend. I'm lucky enough to say that about Ron Brownstein. Ron, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Major. Thanks for those kind words. I can't believe we haven't done this before. (laughs) I mean, it's just staggering, but glad to be here now. So uh, I want you to give the audience the elevator pitch for your book because it reaches back into an important moment in American cultural, political history that I think has relevance right now, and I want you to bridge these two worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rock Me on the Water, uh, my new book, is about culture and politics in L.A. in the 1970s. Uh, And at at first, you know, at at one level, it is about just this incredible constellation of talent that came together at the same place at the same time. People talk about the literary world in Paris in the 20s or the modern art world in New York in the 50s. In the early 70s in L.A., you just had this uh, confluence, all the stars aligned and music, television and movies were all operating at at just a, a tremendous level of innovation and mastery. I mean, we are talking about Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles, Norman Lear and Carol O'Connor, James L. Brooks and Mary Tyler Moore, Larry Gelbart and Alan Alda, and then in the movies, Beatty, Nicholson, Fonda, and and, and the dueling generations of great directors, uh, the older generations like Robert Altman, Bob Rafelson, Alan Bakula, at the same time that Spielberg and Scorsese and Lucas are making their first impressions. It was just an incredible period uh, that produced, as we'll talk about, some of the great popular culture, uh, really, of, of the 20th century, and a lot of fun. I mean, there are a lot of times in the last few years, you know, which have been rough and tumultuous years in America. When I was working on this book, I kind of wished I had woken up and I was driving up to, to Malibu, the colony on a Saturday night to Linda Ronstadt's house. You know, it's like uh, it, it, it was a great place to be. But beneath that, 
there is another level. I mean, this is not only a period of great kind of uh, pop culture innovation. It was a hinge point in American social and political history because it really was through the pop culture produced in LA in the early 1970s that the 60s critique of American life was embedded into our, into our culture. I mean, ideas like greater suspicion of authority in business and government, uh, changing relations between men and women, more personal freedom, uh, more inclusion of previously marginalized groups. All of those ideas really entered the main, they, they were kind of insurrectionary ideas uh, at some sense in the 60s. And in fact, even into the early 70s, Nixon was winning two elections uh, on, on kind of mobilizing the voters most uneasy about the way the 60s had changed society. But what we see in movies like Chinatown and The Godfather and Godfather 2 and shows like All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore and MASH, we see all of those ideas really becoming part of our mental architecture. So in that way, I argue in the book, the culture was ahead of the politics in predicting what America would become. And that I think is the key parallel today. Much like Nixon, Trump showed there is an enormous audience. There is a big audience that can be mobilized uh, on a message of resisting the way society is changing. But I would argue that from the 70s, the precedent is pretty clear that uh, the, the culture in many ways can be a better guide to where we're living. And the culture gives a, a pretty clear sense of uh, that many of the ideas that Trump um, kind of uh, organized against are gaining ground in our society. Right. I argued in my book, and it wasn't an original thought then. It's not one now, uh, Mr. Trump's wild ride, that there are aspects of Donald Trump that were very reminiscent to those who remember Archie Bunker and All in the Family. Yeah. Huh. He was that populist, ordinary American guy who looked around and said, what the hell is going on? Yeah. You know, Ar Ar Archie Bunker is really just a, 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 tr a terrific figure uh, in, in understanding this era for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, the story of how All in the Family got on the air is a major part of the book. There's a whole chapter about it. And it was uh, the product of two very unlikely revolutionaries. Robert Wood, the president of CBS, the, the, the guy who ultimately put it on the air. And, and really, this is the moment that television changes forever. I mean, the, the night in January 1971, All the Family goes on the air, um, to me, is the first step on the road toward the peak TV we are living in. Because through the 60s, the, the dominant message in television, the dominant strategy in television was to ignore all of the changes happening around it to pull down the curtain. Right, to um, anesthetize the audience nationally. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, to as numb I, as it to I everything that the, was going on. Yeah, as I say in the book, um, Walter Cronkite would spend half an hour uh, you know, kind of exposing all of the fissures, all the crevices opening in American life. And then CBS, as well as the other networks, would spend the next three and a half hours trying to erase it from people's minds with the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and Green Acres. I mean, the closest they got to Vietnam was Gomer Pyle and McHale's Navy and Hogan's Heroes. Um, uh, and so what, what Robert Wood, who was a very conservative guy, I mean, he was a Nixon fan. He was a Reagan fan. He, he hated the student demonstrators at Berkeley. Came out of advertising. US, yeah, USC alum, big football booster, came out of KNX TV in LA. Uh, and in fact, soon after, soon after CBS made him president, uh, one of the first things he did was cancel the Smothers Brothers show. Too radical. Wood, Wood recognized the big tectonic change that was happening for all the entertainment industries in the late 60s and early 70s, which was that the baby boom was becoming the dominant force in their in their audience, right? I mean, the, the baby boom was an enormous generation. It was about 
at one point, I think 40 percent of the country. And as they were rising to prominence, um, he felt uh, quite presciently, and as someone who kind of came out of a more urban environment, that the CBS strategy, which the other networks largely uh, emulated, but not as well, of appealing primarily to rural audiences um, was reaching its aspiration date. I mean, uh, what, an LA Times columnist uh, described his thinking, Robert Wood's thinking as, it doesn't matter how many farmers are watching you unless you are trying to sell tractors. Um, so that's what he got. He got that. Um, and it and, and and he was being prodded by the business staff, which was saying even though CBS had like nine of the ten top-rated shows every year, uh, ABC and NBC were were getting higher rates in many cases because they were able to convince audience they had more urban audiences. So he was looking for something that he said, as he put it, would be a conversation starter that would make TV relevant and immediate uh, to to younger audiences, more urban audience, more sophisticated audience, but also to what was happening in the world uh, around it. Um, and then you get from the other side, you get Norman Lear. I mean, Norman Lear, you know, now in retrospect, obviously a, a genius who transformed television, that was not so apparent in 1969. I mean, Norman, Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin, who was his partner and was involved in the early stages, uh, particularly of, all, of, of, of everything they did, um, they were, um, you know, someone described them to me as yeoman producers in the 60s. I mean, they, they, they were Andy Workman -like. Williams. Yeah. Workman like Andy Williams. Come blow your horn, divorce American style, the night they raided Minsky's. There was nothing in their body of work in the 60s that would have said to you, this was the guy who was going to change the way we think about television forever. But the story of All in the Family about the bigoted father and his liberal son-in-law um, echoed, it was originally a British show, as you know, till mm -hmm. death to his part. Um, it echoed his own conflicts with his father. Uh, Herman. And in his mid-40s, as I write, he found a more urgent and passionate voice than he'd ever displayed before. And I don't know in the last time you've seen the first season of All in the Family, but 50 years later, it is like a rock through the television window. I mean, it is, it is staggering to hear that language now. I can't even imagine what it was like to hear it then. It jarred American sensibilities in a revolutionary, important way. Back with Ron Brownstein in segment two of The Takeout and our continuing conversation about his brand new book, Rock Me on the Water. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two coming up in just a second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Rock Me on the Water is the book. Ron Brownstein is the author. And before we get back to Ron and our conversation, just a couple of things. Uh, there are people in life who analyze things for you and you say to yourself, that's it. That I was thinking something. That's it. What, what that person just said or wrote. I have probably said that about what Ron Brownstein has said or written a thousand times, at least. Uh, that's the pantheon I place him in. 
Uh, and I'm delighted that he's here with us. As I mentioned a moment ago at the top of the show, he was for two blissful years my boss at National Journal. We had a wonderful time there. Uh, he's out in L.A. Uh, Ron, I'm just going to say in an elliptical way, I'm heading your way, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. um, it's great to have you with us. Uh, it is important westward what you just said. Empire? Is that the quote? Pardon me? I think westward flows the course of empire. Is that exactly. the quote? <laughs> Uh, for media empires too, but it it's important what you said before the break about this thing that all in the family did because it changed language, it changed perspective, and it put inside American living rooms this thing that was already there, but that television was not reflecting back to American society. And I felt it in my middle class neighborhood in San Diego. My parents looked at that show and said it was a revolution. Like, whoa, what is happening? Yeah. We feel this around us. Our neighbors feel it, but now it's in our. It's it's being essentially uh, validated by an American television network, and that validation gave it legitimacy in a way that made it more topical and conversational. It sort of pushed our middle class family to have conversations that I think my parents were trying to avoid. Yeah, that's a that's a very good way of putting it. I mean. I all in the family condense the, the generation gap and all of the tumult in the 60s into a single living room, right? I mean, you were you were trapped in that room with Archie and Mike Stivic, yeah. Mike, uh, you know, battling out what families all across the country uh, were battling out. And in many ways, the same thing, uh, you know, and, and then in the same in a more gentler way, but also important over time, Mary Tyler Moore was doing something similar. Uh, about the changing role of women, which went on a few months before All in the Family. MASH comes a little later and, and you know, brings the kind of skepticism of authority, military authority, uh, and the war. I mean, the fact that MASH was on the air as a barely veiled metaphor for Vietnam while we were still fighting in Vietnam, we, we don't appreciate how remarkable that was. But as one, you know, senior CBS executive said, it was a little, once they had digested all in the family, everything else, it, it's like the parents who battle with the elder, you know, the elder sibling. And then when the younger one comes along, they just don't have the stomach for the fight anymore. And what's striking major is that the same thing was happening, you know, just literally a few blocks away in Hollywood. Right. I mean, through most of the 60s, the big movies in Hollywood were Mary Poppins and um, the, the, you know, the Bible and Cleopatra. My Fair Lady. Right. It was it was sword and sandal, the longest day. I mean, they were equally, you know, sound of music. Um, they were uh, they were equally determined to look away from what was happening. Um, unlike the TV networks, they lost a lot of money while doing it. And, and this begins to erode in 67, famously with The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, you get Easy Rider in 69, really, though, is, the, is kind of the, when the wall breaks down. And they realize, same thing that Robert Wood, in fact, Robert Wood cites Easy Rider in one internal meeting. Uh, at CBS saying we were losing the younger generations to edgier films like that. So you see the same thing, the, the, the desire to reach this new audience um, was forcing the entertainment industries to confront what was happening around them in a way that they didn't. Obviously music was the first one since they are the most sensitive to the youth audience. They were kind of the first ones uh, to make this a uh, transition. Um, but in all of these cases, um, what you get is a, a more intense engagement with the society around it. 
And as a result, I think it is, it is through that opening that these changes in our mental architecture and our cultural assumptions really are cemented. And, and, and it all happens at the same time and in the same place, which is, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, so that, that's kind of the story I try to tell about early 70s LA. Right. One thing I want to talk about, which I think is an important part of understanding now and its relevance to them. I think you would agree, Ron, uh, that all the component parts of this book and this time, angst, the sense of being smothered by suburban society, anger about government, Watergate, Vietnam, it was angst so white. Okay, and what we see now is a constellation of stars and influencers in Hollywood and music who are not just white, who are at the table for the first time. And they're not just artists who are being managed or owned by large corporations or they are the leaders themselves. They are the creative forces driving decisions from the top down. And it seems like 40 years from now, someone like you could write about a constellation now that is much more diverse and much more people by people of color in this country, sort of realizing some of these angsty aspirations of the 70s, but bringing them to fruition. Right, absolutely. So like I have a chapter in the book, I mean, the great blind spot of this creative renaissance in the early 70s was that it excluded so many voices. I mean, uh, women and uh, African-American filmmakers uh, and TV were largely marginalized. I mean, uh, even as more of those stories were being told in front of the camera in perfectly good times, Jefferson's, Alice doesn't live here anymore. The people in control were still white men uh, up and down the line. And and I talk, uh, I mean, there's, there's a, a, a lot of poignant um, uh, kind of stories about Linda Ronstadt or uh, other, particularly her, I think, um, who, the frustration that every decision, every decision was controlled by men and that it was very hard for her to kind of set her own creative course. She struggled for years spinning her wheels before Heart Like a Wheel uh, in 1974. And obviously with, uh, with uh, black filmmakers, they were kind of, there really was kind of a black film ghetto. I mean, there was, this was the black exploitation era. And on the one hand, it did provide a lot of work uh, more work for black male filmmakers, probably clearly, than for white female filmmakers. Yes. Um, uh, and, Cindy Poitier uh, could direct. Yes. Right. Right. And and, and Gordon Parks and right. you know Gordon Parks Senior. Uh, and 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 some screenwriters. And and they were they they were confident. Um, kind of independent, strong heroes that were kind of put on the screen, Shaft and uh, uh, Foxy Brown and and in their own way, Superfly. But the flip side of it was, I mean, these were, you know, kind of, you know, Roger Corman-esque B-movies with a lot of sex and violence. And there was enormous division in the Black community between those who saw this as empowering and those who saw it as degrading. And there was like a full-scale civil rights backlash. Now, having said that, that was the exclusion at that point, the generation, it, it was really just a generational transition uh, that was going on in the country. Now we have an interwoven generational and racial transition, as you know, because the millennials and Generation Z are each the most diverse generation in history. And the one after Generation Z, which I think will be people born after 2014, is the first time that a majority of a generation will be kids of color in right. American history. 
right? And so, yes, in the same way that I believe culture was ahead of politics in predicting what the country would become in the 70s, I think that is true again now, and it is most true, perhaps, in the field of this, uh, in, in the measure of this diversity and this inclusion. And I think if you watch the Grammys, uh, if you, you know, if you kind of consume any mainstream pop culture at this point, you have a sense of a kaleidoscopically different America that is coming. Um, and politically, Trump showed you can uh, mobilize a lot of voters who don't like the way that looks and sounds. But just as the, the 70s culture, I think, was a better predictor of how people would live, I think that inclusion, that celebration of that uh, diversity is inexorable in American life, even if you can organize short-term political gains around opposing it. Right. And diversity and inclusion is not the same as hedonism. And one of the component parts of the backlash to the 60s was, or the late 60s, early 70s, was that it was recklessly hedonistic. And that is one of the component parts of the movies that we were talking about in the first segment, which in segment three we're going to talk to, talk about shampoo, to a certain degree, Chinatown, other of these movies that were trying to wrestle with this idea of an exhausted America trying to say, wait a minute, what does all this hedonism create for us? What does it leave in its wake? Ron Brownstein's our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Back, join us for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Ron Brownstein is our special guest. His book, Rock Me on the Water. We'll get to the movies in a second, but we got to go to the title, Rock Me on the Water. That is a lyric from Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown is mentioned thoroughly throughout this book. One of the things I will let the audience know about this book, it is, so as Ron has talked about, it's about this constellation of enormous stars and enormously creative people. One thing that those people tend to be, especially at this stage of their careers, is protective of their reputations, protective of their history, protective of their stories. I'm halfway through the book. I bought it last night. This is a thoroughly documented book in which a lot of people give interviews they've never given before or what Ron researches things they said in the past. So he really gets into this from a journalistic perspective. It's not just sort of a love letter to this particular time in Hollywood. It is a deeply researched, deeply interviewed, and footnoted exploration of this time. And I want to give Ron due credit for that. So just talk to us a little bit about Jackson Brown and what you see his relationship to this time is and his importance within it. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that. First of all, Major. Uh, look, I think that the core issue, if there's one thread that runs through all of the great pop culture of, of this period, uh, it is wrestling with the question of what of the ideals, what from the ideals of the 60s could be preserved in the stony or political soil of the 70s with gas lines and stagflation and urban decay uh, and, and the evidence that we were not going to have a fundamental political transformation uh, or a revolution, you know, as, as someone like Tom Hayden might have wished. And Jackson Brown, I think, was uh, among the artists who were at the forefront of trying to wrestle with this, what, what this meant, both in personal and political terms. And, you know, on each of his first three albums, uh, it, there is one song that directly grapples with this question of what from the 60s can be preserved in the 70s. On the first album, it's Rock Me on the Water, which is, you know, oh, people, look among you. It's there your hope must lie. 
you know, and it, it is, it is fundamentally a call to arms at that point. It's still, he wrote it, I think in 71, it appears in 72. I mean, it is still the vision that, okay, okay, we can do this, you know, let's, <laughs> let, let's, let's, let's go out and, 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 and make this a better world. The second album, the title song is for every man and every man for every man is his kind of uh, metaphor for commute, the communal action, the social movements of the 1960s. And he's waiting for every man by this point, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he's waiting for every man. Um, it was, it was uh, inspired, he said, by his friend, David Crosby, uh, who those, those uh, I think from Woodstock will recall the song Wooden Ships, which was kind of like this vision that if society fell apart, they would just kind of sail off into the sunset or if there was a nuclear war, they would sail. Into the sunset. Right. And Jackson Brown said, well, that's great, but what about everybody who can't afford a boat? Right. And so- And doesn't have any purple berries. Album, which is titled For Every Man, he's still waiting for every man. He's still hopeful, but he, he allows the idea on that second song that he may be left, quote, holding sand, right? Mm -hmm. it, may, it may never come to be. Then by the album that I'm writing about in 1974, really, which is his masterpiece, I think, Late for the Sky, um, the, the third song in his apocalypse triptych, as I call it, uh, is Before the Deluge. And the title comes from a Otto Friedrich book about Berlin in the 1920s and early 30s that Linda Ronstadt gave him. But the ideas really come from the Paul Ehrlich kind of era of the population bomb and e ecological disaster. Um, and basically, by now, uh, he, uh, he has grown quite, you know, despairing. Uh, of the idea of change and, uh, you know, speaks of his own generation that they, um, they traded their, their golden wings for the, for the resignation that living brings. Um, and, you know, he's kind of, he's kind of losing faith and, and he loses faith even more by the pretender. The next album yes. is a little after my period where he says, um, where the, you know, the, the, the hope for a greater awakening were they only, were they only fitful dreams. But what I, what I point out in the book is that, Jackson Brown, as his career and life went on, found ways to look forward more than back. And rather than kind of lamenting what was not happening or lost, he found ways to both be productive uh, in his career, but also engaged in his society. And I think that really is what happened to kind of the protest side of the 60s, when, when obviously it became clear in the 70s that, you know, the, the, the most far-reaching ideals were not going to happen, uh, that, you know, change, but that change is kind of a, an ongoing process in your own life and in your community. And I think he's actually very emblematic of that, of that curve, that evolution. Talk to my audience about shampoo, a movie they might not be familiar with. And Chinatown, I'm guessing more than half of my audience probably has either heard about or seen and their relationship to this period of time and their relationship to what was splashed on every front page and every newspaper in America, Watergate. Chinatown and Shampoo are actually bookends. Uh, they were filmed immediately after each other. Uh, some of the key ca uh, crew members from Ch uh, Chinatown went immediately to Shampoo, Richard and Anthea Silbert, among them, the great uh, set designer and costume designer. And uh, Robert Town uh, was the screenwriter for both of them. The second one uh, in partnership with, with Warren Beatty. And they are both really about kind of a lament 
of the decadence uh, and the, what, what, the, what the filmmaker saw as the decline of America in the early 1970s told through a story of LA in an earlier era. And I say they are bookends because Chinatown is dark and labyrinthine and you know conspiracies. Shampoo is seemingly sunny and open and light, but they end at the same place as I talk about in the book, which is that the hero is kind of left bereft uh, at his inability to A, save the woman he loves, or B, to master the force of shaping his life. Chinatown, of course, is the story of LA's original sin, the stealing of the water that allowed the San Fernando Valley uh, to, uh, to bloom, uh, to, be, to become a, you know, a giant population center. Uh, and it's told through the story of Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, uh, whose father, Noah Cross, Played play by the famed director John Huston, uh, is both a kind of what a, a a personal and professional monster. And Jack Nicholson, in his first truly romantic leading role as the iconic detective J.J. Giddes, uh, gets involved in, in untangling what what becomes a very uh, Byzantine uh, mystery. Shampoo is the story of Warren Beatty as a Beverly Hills hairdresser uh, who is having juggling a kaleidoscopic series of affairs takes place on the night of Richard Nixon's election in 1968. And, you know, one reviewer described Chinatown as Watergate with real water. Right. Um, and and that, that is, in fact, what it's about. You know, as, 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 as Robert Town said to me when I talked to him for the book, I mean, the core message is you don't know as much as you think you do. Right. Which is what Americans were really being told in the early 70s. They were learning that day. They were learning that day in and day out as the revelations of Watergate unspooled. To the yes. disbelieving oh, and, and eyes of Washington, to the disbelieving eyes of reporters who thought that was yep. a nothing story at its origins, yep. it unraveled in front, and, and people were like, could this be? Could this be? It was. And Jake Giddis follows that same progression. Same, right. Same era as the Pentagon Papers and the ITT scandal and all of this you know, really did an enormous, took an enormous bite out of public trust in government. And what you begin to see in the movies systematically in the early 70s, whether it's the Parallax View or Clute uh, or uh, The Conversation, is this, or Chinatown, certainly the Godfather movies, uh, which, which he, which he, which Coppola saw as kind of a metaphor uh, for, for, for all of this. Um, uh, you, you see this, this idea that you don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You can't trust uh, the official sources. This is when it really begins to be embedded in popular culture. Um, it was not. It was not a state. You know, so many of these things are so much a part of our mental architecture that we can't imagine there was a time before them. Right. But there actually was. Exactly. <laughs> it's the moment and, where where and, where the hinge happens. Yeah. And in the book, you faithfully recount so many powerful lines from Chinatown. There's one line that I remember from the movie because I can't forget it. It's when Noah Cross says to Jake Giddis. What most people don't understand is a man is capable of doing anything. And he says it with such velocity and such evil and such malevolent intent that it's so shocking. He's like a monster in that moment. Yeah. Can, can, I, can yeah. I tell a funny story quickly? Yes. What, you know, John Huston, of course, is the father of Angelica Huston, who was dating 
had just moved to LA from New York. She come from kind of the Lower East Side, Andy Warhol world of, you know, dark urine, urine, you know, stained uh, alleys. Ron, hold hold the story. Hold the thought. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to pick up on the other side. That's a nice teaser. Ron Brownstein's our special guest segment for The Takeout in just a second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm not going to delay the action. Angelica Houston, carry on, Ron Brownstein. Perceptive observers uh, I interviewed uh, in this book. And she had just moved to L.A. in 1973 from the Lower East Side of New York when she was kind of immersed in the Andy Warhol world, darkness, drugs, you know, tenement walk-ups. She moves out to LA, it's bright and sunny, she's riding horses, but she starts dating Jack Nicholson almost immediately after uh, she arrives. And of course her father is John Houston, who plays Noah Cross, the villain in, in Chinatown. So the one day, she, go, she goes to the set one day to visit them both and they are having lunch uh, at a long table outside. And fittingly, John Houston is sitting at the head of the table. She is sitting to his right, and to his left are Nicholson and Polanski. Roman okay. Polanski, uh, the director. Roman Polanski was the director. His first return to L.A. since the murder of Sharon Tate by Charles Manson, the first time he's back in L.A. So they're having lunch, and she's sitting there, and John Houston leans in toward Jack Nicholson. And to understand this, of course, if you remember from the movie, John Huston is the father of Faye Dunaway, uh, and Jack Nicholson uh, has been hired by her, but is also starting to romance her. Um, uh, and John Huston leans over to Jack Nicholson and says, I hear you've been sleeping with my daughter. And this hush goes over the table, like the temperature <laughs> drops like 20 degrees. And then he finishes, Mr. Gitz. Uh, in other words, he was rehearsing a line and she said it was all ha ha at my expense. And of course, the other thing that people will remember from the movie, those who've seen it, is that John Huston could not pronounce Gettys. Right. He pronounced it Gitz. Gitz. And Roman Polanski decided to keep it because it, 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 he thought it embodied his bottomless arrogance and sense of entitlement. Which it did. It was exactly the right call. Exactly the right call. So let's transition to... Uh, what might be regarded, perhaps you do, as a semi-backlash to this sensibility mm-hmm. you just expressed in segment three from these directors, embodied by Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. Yeah, right. Uh, look, I mean, one of the and great Peter ironies- Bogdanovich And Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah, Peter Bogdanovich is early on that. Uh, one of the great ironies of this period is that in many ways, the most coruscating uh, portrayals of America, the ones that most reflected the alienation that, that uh, infused a lot of the 60s movements came from the older generation, 
whether it was Norman Lear and Larry Gelbart and on television, or certainly uh, Pakula and Bob Rafelson and Robert Altman uh, and others uh, in, in, in movies. And in fact, when the, the directors born in the 40s, the, the first baby boomer or slightly older directors begin to get the helm in 73 and 74, um, they are, as, as, as uh, Peter Adonovich said, although he was from 39, they were alienated from the alienation, right? They, they you know, George Lucas makes American graffiti and he goes to Modesto where he grew up and he gives a speech to the Chamber of Commerce. And he said, I was tired of movies where I felt worse coming out of the theater than I did going in, which may have been the mission statement for Arthur Penn and Bob Rafelson and Alan Bakula and Hal Ashby and this brilliant older generation. But the younger generation, when they got their hands on the wheel, um, they, you know, they fainted a little bit in this direction. I mean, Lucas's first movie, THX 1138, uh, Spielberg, some elements of uh, Sugarland Express, but by and large, these, these are these are not clothes that fit them, you know. And they wanted to return Hollywood to its traditions of just kind of bravura filmmaking, mm -hmm. uh, villains that you hiss at, heroes that you cheer at. And I have a whole chapter in the book that it is striking that Jaws and by Spielberg, which is the beginning of the blockbuster era. And Nashville by Robert Altman, mm -hmm. which I would argue is the culmination, not necessarily the best movie of the early 70s, but kind of the Moby Dick, the, you know, the movie that tries to in incorporate all of the major themes into one canvas. They are filmed at the same time. They are released at the same time. Yep. They are on the cover of Time and Newsweek one week apart. They're filmed in the summer of 74, released in the summer of 75. And you really can see the end in many ways, obviously, Network is still to come, one of your favorite movies, yep. Coming Home. But Nashville, in some ways, is the culmination to me of early 70s cinema. And Jaws is the beginning of what comes next with all of its strengths and limits. And in Sugarland Express, in Sugarland Express and Jaws, the everyman hero is a cop. Is a cop, right. It, it, which, which, which was not something that would have occurred to Robert Altman. No. And I love the vignette in the book where you talk about the clash between Steven Spielberg and Paul Schrader over Close Encounters of a Third Kind yeah. over the underlying script. Paul Schrader says, I don't want the first human encounter with an alien life form to go to another planet to set up a McDonald's stand. And Steven Spielberg says, that's exactly what I want. That's exactly what I want. Schrader, you know, exactly right. And, you know, it is really hard to think of a more mismatched pair. But that's but that's about to say, I want to root it in what America and the audience that I'm reaching deals with all the time and deals with comfortably. And if you think it's bourgeois, too bad. Get out. Yeah, right. I mean, look, Spielberg was not was not, you know, Spielberg was not out to kind of debunk or uh, undermine uh, kind of the verities of mainstream American right, society. Right, not wave a condemning finger at bougie America. It's like, whatever, yeah, that's no, what it that, is. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't him. And, you know, those movies of the early 70s, uh, look, at the same time that this is happening with Jaws, don't forget what happens on television. You'll remember this. In 1976, Happy Days replaces All in yep. the Family as the number one show on TV. Yep. You know, ABC had research, uh, consumer research, that people were just tired of relitigating the battles of the 60s. Yep. You know, um, and um, I think, you know, uh, there was a political backlash. You get the family hour on television, kind of the first stirrings of the religious right pushing back against the increased freedom of expression. Maude has an abortion uh, uh, and that generates all sorts of uh, protests. But it was it, it wasn't only a political backlash the, the, you know, the consumer preference 
was moving on. And uh, in many ways, as I said to you earlier, the great, the greatest pop culture that came out of LA in the early 70s was about the collision between the realities of the 70s and the ideals of the 60s. The, 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 trying to hold on uh, to see what, what could be grafted onto this uh, stonier political soil. And as the decade went on and as the hope for change went on, uh, hope for change diminished, fundamental change diminished, even though these other cultural changes were happening, the wheel of culture spun and, and, and LA's moment kind of expired. And I'm gonna give you a minute to, again, place all of this in our current political context. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Look, the culture, the culture was, I, I believe that in the early 70s, the culture was ahead of the politics in predicting what the country would become. That, that the introduct, that the, the immersion, the suffusion of popular culture with these ideas like changing roles between men and women, more personal freedom, uh, more skepticism of business and government. These were winning ideas that were going to change the future, even though Nixon twice won national elections by mobilizing the voters most discomfited by them. And I would argue the same thing is happening again today, that you can look at some of the, some of the ideas ideas uh, about inclusion, about uh, the way we treat racial, religious, and sexual minorities. Um, uh, and you, you can see the power that Trump has, has found and Republicans have found in mobilizing the voters who are uneasy about what that means for the country. But that is still the way we're going to be living in 10 years if this precedent uh, is right. That is the voice of Ron Brownstein. His new book is Rock Me on the Water. For our radio audience, we must bid you farewell for this week. Please come back next week for those enjoying, and I know you are, this conversation on CBSN and our podcast platform. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. You've been listening to, watching, and as always, thoroughly enjoying the Takeout. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Ron Brownstein is my special guest. His new book, Rock Me on the Water. It is about the constellation of stars, creative talent in and around Los Angeles, basically within a very small part of Los Angeles in the early 1970s and all of the things that flowed from it that live with us today culturally. Uh, before we get to the fun and games part of this, I know there's a good portion of the book devoted to David Geffen. You think he's important? Tell my audience why. Yeah, you know, Ge Geffen obviously uh, was a, David Geffen was a, first an agent, uh, then, a, then a label, record label owner, created Asylum Records. Uh, he was the home for, for most of the music artists that we identify with the Southern California sound of the early, early 70s, particularly Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, and the Eagles. And he was always a very controversial figure. I mean, you know, Geffen, uh, as, as someone said to me, you know, you got to realize he's always, he's always about Geffen, but he was kind of a genius, you know, at, at, finding, uh, at finding a sound that, that was compatible, that was consistent, that was coherent, uh, and, then, and then marketing it. And, and in some ways, you could see his impact most from his absence. When he, when he left the music business uh, for a while uh, in the mid-70s, as I say, the escalator that seemed to run from the troubadour to the top of the charts stopped running. Um, and, um, you know, Geffen was uh, just a critical figure in, in, in pulling this together and kind of causing this constellation to stay in orbit. Um, and when he was gone, it kind of, kind of uh, what, decomposed or pulled apart. And then he matured into a big political player later. 
Yeah, yes. And and returned to the record business and had a triumphant second act in the 80s with uh, Don Henley, uh, who was actually kind of a lifelong antagonist. I mean, they had kind of a complex relationship and Guns N' Roses. Uh, and then he sells to uh, MCA and, and goes even higher into the stratosphere. You know, that's one of the things also, uh, Major, is that it wasn't only the artists. I mean, like we're talking Robert Wood. Uh, David Geffen, uh, Irving Azoff, uh, Robert Evans. I mean, uh, uh, there was just an incredible constellation of talent in the executive side, uh, but with the big blind spot that, you know, it was, it really was a white boys club. And they, and I talked to, uh, you know, Sherry Lansing and other women uh, who were in the earlier first, you know, kind of generation trying to claw into uh, the executive, the C-suites. And it was tough going. I mean, at the beginning, you know, she had to make specific reservations to use the gym at MGM because they wouldn't let women in. Right. I mean, tough going or non-existent going. Or non-going. Yes, exactly. And the rule and the rule for being in the room was that you wouldn't challenge the rules in the room. Right. That was like kind of the rule. Exactly. So, uh, fun and games. Uh, we have three threshold questions. Last week, we got to ask them to Chuck Lorre, Dave Getch, mm. Maria Ferrari, David Petraeus, and Ryan Crocker. So, you're up against, uh, last week, a formidable lineup. Uh, but the three questions always apply. I hope so, he doesn't have best restaurants in Iraq since you got Petraeus. <laughs> I, I am so, not going to be able to compete. Precisely. So, uh, most influential book in your life, uh, all-time favorite movie, and uh, you're on a long flight or a long drive. What kind of music do you listen to if you are trying to indulge yourself musically, either by artist or genre? Uh, I would say all-time favorite book is either The Master of the Senate or The Impending Crisis by David Potter, which is about the 1850s, politics in the 1850s. Uh, all-time favorite movie... Oh, I think I have to go with the first Godfather. Um, uh, long, long trip. I mean, while I was writing this book, it was definitely uh, early 70s, but, uh, you know, so SoCal. Uh, but like my, I think my high point was actually, uh, obviously, Springsteen. Yes, uh, I know the answer to this question. It's Springsteen. But, but also, also, the other thing, the other thing would be kind of uh, the Clash um, uh, replacements, Ramones. Uh, and then I guess... Uh, no, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revise that. I'm going to say if I'm going for a long trip and I got to listen to a whole bunch of stuff, I think I li listen to Lucinda Williams-esque Rootsy, uh, Rootsy Americana. I think that it's just incredible richness there. Excellent. In our last minute and a half, I want to give you a chance to talk about the transformation in the journalism world that you and I have seen in our career. It is uh, Newsweek and Time don't set the agenda. The network newscasts don't set the agenda. Barely the New York Times sets the agenda. The LA Times doesn't set the agenda. The agenda, if there is one, is atomized across an entire spectrum of information sources. How does that change the way we consume news? How depressed or anxious are you about disinformation, misinformation masquerading as news? Well, clearly there are no gatekeepers. That's obviously the biggest change. There is no Cronkite. There's not only not even an R.W. Apple or a David Berger. I mean, Peter Baker is probably the most important print reporter out there, and he eminently deserves the role. But he, he does. doesn't have the role that Apple did. No, I mean, no one does. You can't. It, none of the you know Nora and David Muir and um, uh, Lester Holt. They're all very talented journalists, but you can't apply to be. Walter Cronkite anymore, nope. or even David Brinkley. Position I mean, doesn't exist. Can't be filled because it doesn't exist. That doesn't exist. So in one sense, um, that's good. It's more democratized. Right. I mean, they're, they're all not, the hierarchies narrow, are crumbled. Yeah, there's not this narrow funnel. There's just this enormous panoply of voices uh, that are out there. Uh, the downside is without 
gatekeepers. It's it's hard for I think average readers to kind of know what what's real and what isn't. And there's also this just um, you know the extent that we're all kind of uh, living online. There is the kind of what Richard Darman you will remember called now nowism. Yep. Thirty years ago mm-hmm. that, that like there's a tendency to see everything as happening as if it's being written on a blank page when in fact I believe almost everything we are li- living through uh, you know is is either a outgrowth of what's happened before or a backlash to things that have happened before and the ability to make that clear in journalism I think is diminished by the need to convince people to constantly come back like that what, what you know something really important has just happened you gotta you gotta click you gotta tune in um, and that's just kind of the way the economic incentives have shifted. But all in all, I don't really lament the loss of the gatekeepers. I mean, I think it's good that we have uh, more voices than ever yep. being heard. And I would say that I think this is true. There are more people than ever consuming news. Uh, it's just that it's become so fractionated uh, that it's, it, you know, it's kind of hard to, to, to build an economic model that works. And the same thing is true for the entertainment industries, right? I mean, right. You know, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're an aspiring you know, singer, you know, you can probably get heard by more people than the equivalent person in 1971. The hard part is making a living while doing it. Precisely. You know, we, we see a common trend across not only news media, but also entertainment media. That's the voice of Ron Brownstein. His new book, Rock Me on the Water. What a great conversation. I could go on and on and on, but we only have a finite amount of time. Ron, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Thanks for writing it. Oh, Major, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. See you, folks. Back next week, as always. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Millie Vanilli, the Grammy winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. 
Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.